0: Hello, 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 hello. I want to apologize first. This is Danny Haifong. This is another episode of Cold War Brew. It is Friday, July 1st, the 1st of July. We are heading in to the July 4th weekend. I do not celebrate July 4th. I hope you don't either. But even if you do, I hope that you enjoy your week by listening to this podcast. But I am... I want to just say i apologize the date was wrong this was scheduled for july 2nd that always happens when i'm scheduling rooms here on the app for some reason sometimes it's a glitch sometimes it's just me but i want to apologize this podcast was supposed to happen today i hope that i get more folks coming from telegram from the live stream and of course uh from and joining here live but I wanted to come on today and do an episode. I want to take your live calls, so please get in the queue as soon as you can, as soon as you feel comfortable. I can talk about some just brief reactions. I just had a live stream with Carlos Martinez over at Friends of Socialist China. I work with him closely. He's out in London. Wrote a great book called The End of the Beginning on the Collapse of the Soviet Union, and we uh, wrote an article National Critical Thought, a journal, an academic journal, on the liberalization, on the universalization of uh, liberal democracy. So uh, that's uh, we work closely together, and we had a great stream about the NATO summit, about the BRICS summit, and so we can continue to talk about that here. And of course, you can ask me any questions that you have. By getting in the queue I do ask for comments to be here two minutes though because i want to make sure that we have a full episode here i generally stay on for 45 minutes to an hour so greetings greetings everyone on this friday july 1st let's get right to it i don't see anyone in the queue just yet <clears throat> but I wanted to just start by summarizing a bit of the goings-on of the NATO summit. So that occurred uh, over the last two days now. I believe it ended yesterday. And uh, over the course of the two days at the NATO summit, you had some massive escalations announced. First, prior to the summit, last Tuesday, you had Turkey give up its veto against uh, Finland in sweden's proposed nato membership in it in exchange for a settlement so they got some of their demand doing this for anti-imperialist reasons wasn't doing it for anti-nato reasons turkeys in nato they were doing it for political reasons and they got some of those political demands met not every demand uh, but we can sort of surmise that especially around the Kurdish struggle, uh, Turkey is uh, very much opposed to any other country aiding or even verbally supporting the Kurdish struggle uh, in Turkey. Uh, They got some concessions there, maybe some military concessions because the United States, NATO, uh, NATO itself has been very much opposed to Turkey acquiring S uh, 400 uh, anti missile systems, uh, but I don't know if there was movement really there. So, <clears throat> the addition of into NATO is a massive escalation that happened before the NATO summit, but it really did preempt the NATO summit and what was to be expected. Russia has already announced that it's going to place nukes on its borders right after this occurs. So there will be a massive escalation here. It is right in this what they call the neutral space, what they call the space between NATO and Russia has shrunk dramatically. Sweden already was holding NATO military exercises despite not being a member and angering Russia even prior to this. But now we see that they're all in after the Russia special military operation launched late February. Now they're all in for NATO. And and I think that's very dangerous. So next, during the summit, it was announced that NATO is increasing its readiness forces, really its offensive forces. putting them on high alert, but increasing them from 40,000 troops to 300,000, so almost a tenfold increase. So that's also very dangerous. We should not uh, underestimate how dangerous that is. And uh, this was announced at the NATO summit as well and uh, just shows how much NATO is invested in increasing its aggressiveness, in particular against Russia and now against China, which was also a big story out of the NATO summit the new so-called strategic concept, the first strategic concept since 10 years ago. So it's been 10 years since the last one. The new one talks about China directly as a threat to the quote-unquote rules-based international order and calls China malicious in the areas of technological development and cyber warfare. And it targets China its alliance with Russia, its relationship with Russia. It basically states that China is going to be a focus of NATO activities. Now, it also spoke out of the other side of its mouth in the same document saying that uh, they will work with China where they can. It almost sounds like if you read the strategic concept, you can just Google it get the pdf i could send it to you but um i i honestly don't always like to get off the app when i'm on the phone if you look at the strategic concept 2022 the nato strategic concept it's wrote it and this is the big point about the nato really an alliance this isn't a partnership among equals this is truly the united states organizing its junior partners as an attack dog against Russia and China. That is all NATO is. NATO is not, quote unquote, united around guiding principles, which is, um, oh, it says I'm breaking up here and there. Oh, I don't like that. Okay, let me, let me try to fix this, guys. Thanks for the audio. I didn't check the audio here. Hold on one second. How do I sound now? Okay. How about now? Cut the Pentagon. Am I okay? I'm good? Maybe because I was moving around. Okay. Good. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But well, please do get in the queue, guys. Please do get in the queue. We can have a conversation. But um, sorry about the audio issues. I'm using a headset um, plugged into a phone. So apologies for that. So, yeah, to continue, NATO is a an alliance... That is motivated by some kind of united principles. No, it, it, it's US interests that are being expressed here. And so there is a power relationship. There is a relationship that is not equal. Although it is true that our Eurocentric imperialist vision of dominance led by the United States, but they want their cut too. And now we are seeing through these moves, one, the increase in the troops, NATO troops put on high alert. Two, uh, the admission of Finland and Sweden into NATO. And three, the focus on China. We can see there is unity around this uh, objective of U.S. dominance, Uh, These junior partners are slavishly going along with NATO and it's very troubling and we very much should take this seriously. And the NATO summit was covered pretty extensively, of course, by the Western mainstream media, covered in a way that made it out to be as serious as it was. Although there were reports about the China focus. It is new. If there's one thing about the Western mainstream media that they will do is, well, they won't give us the perspective that we need, and they'll often distort and lie. If there is something new to report on from the imperialists, especially at the, when the imperialists like like it, uh, of course they love the idea of Nick They're going around the Western mainstream media. So you had the NATO summit happen. You also had G set the G7 group of imperialist countries too led by the United States they met just prior to the NATO summit and they came together around what they are calling an infrastructure deal that to counter the Belt and Road Initiative so a $600 billion so-called plan to fund new infrastructure around the world, was agreed upon by the G7. And it's called the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment. And so when they met in the week, June 27th, and it's all about countering the Belt and Road Initiative. Now, for some context, China had already spent $600 billion U.S. dollars alone on the Belt and Road Initiative in, by 2019. And now it's in the tr- more than a trillion worth of investment, more than 148 countries involved in the initiative, more than 1,500 projects underway or planned or complete competition here. And it's- also understand that the United States and the G7 countries... Are not going to invest in infrastructure around the world. They can't even invest in infrastructure in their own countries. Europe is about to shut the lights off because of their ridiculous and counterproductive sanctions against Russia. The United States can't pass the Build Back Better. What happened to the Build Back Better world? Right, because that was a global plan led by Biden as well. Nothing came. Out of the United States it is completely dead in Congress. <laughs> The Biden administration doesn't care. There isn't any infrastructure development happening here. There's more fracking. There's more drilling on federal lands. There's more of all the things that we were told weren't going to happen in the United States, but there is an infrastructure development happening on a real scale. That $600 billion is probably just going to go to private monopolists and investors and bankers, and they're going to do what they want with it if it even jumps off the ground. And so the Belt and what's so interesting uh, reason that the G7 even announced this is because China is cleaning their clock. China is absolutely running away with the battle uh, for renewable energy, for state-of-the-art quality infrastructure in rail, in high tech. So it's not even a a contest right now. But the G7, right, preempted the NATO summit announcement. So really we have a broad front being waged by the United States and its imperialist allies to isolate, to provoke China at a moment where at the same NATO summit it was announced that Russia is the biggest enemy to... NATO's interests this is no surprise of course I mean look at what's happened in the special military operation in Ukraine. NATO has been pumping weapons to Ukraine into the Zelensky government prolonging the conflict provoked the expansion into NATO I mean into Ukraine so it's no surprise that NATO has Russia as its primary target I mean its very origins. It was all about protecting, supposedly protecting Europe from the Soviet Union. And then of course the big controversy was after the Soviet Union collapsed, NATO kept on expanding and it was break up Russia even further. It was the collapse of the Soviet Union. So I am being told that I am choppy again. Ay so okay. Um not sure. You know, I'm in a different location. I wonder if that's the reason. Um sorry about that, guys. I thought that this was gonna work out okay. But uh Yeah. Choppiness. So people okay, well don't know. I'm sorry about if there's any choppiness, but anyway. Let me know. I don't think I see anyone in the queue yet, so I can keep going. I don't see anyone in the queue yet. Um, So, yeah, I mean, that's the NATO summit. Massive escalations there. But there was something else that happened right before the NATO summit, uh, the week before. And that was the BRICS summit. And that summit was very important. And the United States and the Western media did not not cover it. Western media only wrote very brief reports about it before it started in the days up to it. But it was completely ignored as it was happening and as developments came out from the BRICS summit. So, BRICS, of course, if you're not familiar, it is an association. It is of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. There is a BRICS Plus formation to make this arrangement this association even more inclusive and uh, really what it is is it's an economic block it's an alliance it is one that mainly focuses on finance and economics and figuring out how to coordinate the realm of finance how to figure that out how to pool how to figure out an alternative currency, right? All of these things are very important to BRICS, to the U.S. dollar. And so they met again. And at this summit, right, there's been a lot of momentum toward a BRICS Plus framework. And we have now... uh, uh, addition or another few additions to so Argentina is applying for BRICS membership and so is Iran so these are big developments right? there's a lot of countries, Bangladesh, Indonesia Mexico, they all want in but Iran and Argentina have applied uh, and that was one of the big developments of this, all these, uh, of the new development bank, which is all about fi- pooling together finance for development um, between these countries and, of course, making an inclusive system. One of the big differences between this and, let's say, the international financial system is that it is not based on unequal distribution of both control and shares. So you might know that in the IMF, the United States has a a, a very strong influence of its voting uh, because of its uh, the weight that its vote holds in the International Monetary Fund. Well, in BRICS, all the leading countries—Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa—they all have the same weight in terms of shares, shareholders at the New Development Bank or together they don't there's not one country in there that has more weight they try to do it on a consensus model and so with iran and argentina joining what you have is two countries that have faced the brunt of what imperialism at a, at the level of finance what it does to oppressed nations so, our most indebted countries in Latin America, you might have heard during the uh, Christina Kirchner Fernandez administration, you may have heard of the sanctions that plague Iran led by the United States and in in the EU, or the, I mean the United States, in, uh, the UN, so-called UN-based sanctions that have starved Iran and starved Europe and created a lot of havoc in Iran's economy and just the economy at large so you may have heard of that and these two countries are looking for alternatives and they're going to BRICS for it and so this is an unprecedented strengthening of this formation that is still in the works, still working things out, still working toward an alternative to the U.S. dollar. But it is good news that this summit happened almost as a a preview of what the opposing trend in the world really is to the NATO summit and the G7. You have two divergent paths here. You have the so-called underdeveloped countries, The so-called third world, global south, led by China and Russia, leading us toward a multipolar world, a world of sovereign development, peaceful development, a world where things like poverty and climate change are put at the forefront in peace, right? That's a big theme here. These countries are for peace they have made it very clear that they're for peace. And their actions say that they're for peace. Now, of course, with Russia's special military operation, to talk about the nuance there, but we have to be clear here about how... um, about how Russia was provoked into the special military operation, there is a context that's important. But if we look in the main at Russia's actions, even over the last decade, we can see that peace has been a priority. It has not been emphasized toward Russia's adversaries. So this is very important to understand there. But on, in the main, the BRICS countries have emphasized peace, they have not been involved in foreign conflicts. They are not investing in the military. They are not investing in that kind of aggression. Military. They are moving toward a path of peace while the U.S. and its NATO alliance are moving to what could be a nuclear winter. And I just want to also say that it's very important that we take it as seriously as that. Because how the U.S. is building up toward China, building up toward Russia, those are countries that are nuclear armed. The United States has used them before. And any conflict that should emerge between that direction, given the state of the U.S. at this point, and given just where things are, how advanced everything is becoming. So I have a caller, though. So I want to end there on that very bright note, <laughs> but it is a there is something I think to be, um, to be optimistic about here, and that is the direction the BRICS countries are going, that the world is going from the uh, imperialist powers. But I have a caller, so if it's a comment, please keep it at two minutes. Um, I've just made you the nice caller thanks for coming hey
1: man you were just cutting out a little bit there but maybe it will stop um so i'm gonna admit right away i'm not the most knowledgeable on this topic but just two big questions one the, the statement you were talking like a peaceful oriented alliance or i don't see them being any different than all the other countries uh my main evidence would be china's treatment of hong kong and china's treatment of uh taiwan and then the other one obviously would be russia towards ukraine and i still don't get anybody's argument about like how russia had to the whole argument to me is Akin to somebody uh, blaming. Okay, there's two guys at a bar, and, and then a woman starts talking to one guy at the bar, and then the other guy gets jealous, and then that guy goes over and starts hitting the. Like that's, the, and then then you blame you blame the woman for talking to the guy and making the other dude jealous. Like that seems like the argument to me when people are like, Russia had to attack Ukraine to NATO, like that doesn't make any sense to me. It, it, like, okay. you're, blaming, you're blaming Ukraine for manifesting its own destiny and like and, and wanting to do what it wanted to do. And then uh, saying saying it's it's US's fault for like talking to Ukraine when it's like Russia is obviously the like the one causing damage.
0: Well I can address both of those points. Um, definitely definitely Thanks for bringing them up. Well, let me just start with China. So for one, in terms of China's treatment of its weaker population, it's very important to note that we have been fed a whole lot of misinformation about that. Uh, the U.S. media has been taking, the U.S. mainstream media, I should say, and the Western media in general, has been taking from a very, very, shoddy and shady group of a small number of sources, mainly ranging from far-right Christian funds who work for government, U.S. government-funded institutions like the Victims, Memorial, uh, the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, the Jamestown Foundation, which has links to the national security state as well, And groups like the Australia Strategic Policy Institute, which are funded by the United States Defense Department, the Australia Defense Department, and all of the major military, not all of them, but I should say there's only a big handful of the major ones, but Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman. So these sources have a huge interest in distorting and honestly just lying about the situation in Xinjiang. The reality of the matter, I mean, I've been to Xinjiang. I've traveled there, spoken to Uyghurs. The situation is not what it is made out to be. There was a problem
2: with. And it.
0: uh, A whole lot of countries that are plagued with terrorism. It's a very unfortunate thing. And China was dealing with this problem too, especially in the early 90s and then into. Uh, the 2000s, uh, there were hundreds of attacks, many people injured, killed. I mean, we're talking about pe- the hundreds of people killed, stabbings. There were two in a room sheet, 2009, 2014. Uh, these were very, very uh, scary events. These were events that if they were to happen in the United States every day, we would be bombing. We already do bomb almost every single country in the Middle East. But that's how the United States dealt with the problem. How China dealt with the problem was by investing in education, investing in employment opportunities in one of the poorest regions, what once was one of the poorest regions in China. And then, of course, bringing those who did commit crimes to justice. So people did go to prison. Now they weren't concentration camps and prison camps. They were prisons and people served time for committing violent crimes. Uh, but there hasn't been an attack since 2016. Poverty, extreme poverty has been eliminated there. Uh, when I was there, you could see all of the development that has been occurring and people have real hope. And this includes the Uyghur population, which has seen its living standards increased dramatically over the past several decades And so the situation is a lot more complex, and I don't think we can really extrapolate China's behavior. And you said you're not familiar with this subject. You don't have a lot of knowledge about it. So I think we can just see the reality that China does not invest in militarism, does not invest in wars abroad like the United States or NATO does, and that actually its treatment of ethnic minorities is far more Generous and far better than what the United States or any Western country does. The United States in the West record toward its own ethnic minority populations, it don't abhorrent. and I don't need to get into why that is. I would hope that there's some knowledge about that. But uh, with Taiwan, I spoke about this yesterday at the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, or oh Hong Kong. okay, I'll talk about Hong Kong. Hong Kong was a colony of the United Kingdom, colony of the British Empire, all the way until 1997 when there was a hand back to China. Under the British Empire for more than a century, there was no democracy in Hong Kong. People were completely stripped of all of their civil liberties, not to mention the economic squalor that existed in Hong Kong at that time. When it was handed back to China, China respected the one country, two systems policy. And Hong Kong had a thriving capitalist economy, with all, still does, with all of its contradictions, including a severe housing crisis and massive levels of poverty. But nonetheless, the United States and Western allies, in an attempt to destabilize China, funded with hundreds of millions of dollars uh, these opposition groups, which then Uh, spurred these protests in 2014, then 2019 and early 2020 until China came and said, this is a violation of our sovereignty. Hong Kong is China. It will always remain China. That is what the international law, that's what
2: the agreement between
0: the United Kingdom and China Portends. And so they came out with a national security law, which wasn't a clean sweep or some kind of police state action. It was merely a reassertion of Article 23 of the Basic Law, which stipulates that one country, two systems is the model, and that Hong Kong will forever remain a part of China, and that anyone who tries to secede or try to break Hong Kong from China will be brought to justice. And that's what's happened. A lot of the activities, those activities have been clamped down on, NGOs. Foreign NGOs or or NGOs that have connections with uh, uh, with the the National Endowment for Democracy or any other uh, cutout of the CIA, they've been closed and punished and and that's what the National Security Law did. So, in regards to Russia, I'll just say this really quickly. I think that it is an extremely simplistic and comparison that was made with uh, kind of blaming the victim of abuse because the U- Ukraine was victim of a coup sponsored by the United States and NATO in 2014 where that act alone not only empowered the far right and these nationalists in the country, and some of them outright Nazis, But it also led to an ethnic cleansing campaign from between 2014 all the way up into the special military operation waged by Russia. There were thousands upon thousands of ethnic Russian and Russian-speaking people in the eastern Ukraine region who were brutalized, killed, maimed, and murdered by Ukraine's puppet coup government. And that is a reality that continues and it forms the basis of why this special military operation is occurring. And we need to look at a map. Russia and East Ukraine, it is within Russia's security interests to have that region stable and for there not to be activities led by NATO occurring there. And NATO announced in 2009 that it wanted to admit Ukraine. And in 2014, facilitated a coup that has led to the point where it basically is a de facto NATO state. So I think it's to blame the victim comparison when the United States did everything possible to provoke Russia into doing something. William Burns, the now CIA director of the Biden administration, once a U.S. ambassador to Russia, said in the early 90s that this was going to happen if the U.S. pursued NATO membership, if NATO pursued membership for Ukraine. And that is exactly what has happened. And that is why we're here today. So I don't think the blame the victim comparison is But I'm going to now move on to Sonia because she's been waiting very patiently. Hi, Sonia. Hi, how are you? I am good, thanks. I hope that the audio is okay. People have been saying I've been breaking up. And I don't know what to do about it. <laughs> so I hope no, that you you've are been able coming to hear through
2: me. clear for me. So,
0: okay, good.
2: Yeah, so I just had a quick question. Um, I feel like BRICS probably the only real challenge to But it seems like there isn't really much unity between the countries, especially India and China seem to have a lot of tension between them at this point. So I wanted to hear your thoughts as far as where you see that going in the future. Do you think that unity will develop, or do you think this is just kind of a temporary formation?
0: Good question. Yes, the political situation, especially in uh, uh, India and China, And surely there's a lot of tension, especially around the border disputes, especially because, you know, India's government has this, this kind of, uh, it's like a, a kind of pseudo Western, pro Western mentality on top of the fact that it wants to compete and be almost like on top. It has this, it has this about it. It doesn't have, always have the, Biggest cooperative spirit, uh, the BJP, it's Modi. But at the same time, uh, uh, India's membership in the BRICS, and I think just in general, how India navigates politically on global questions, especially ones that affect the economic situation, is that it will kind of, you know, reminds me, I think, of. I don't want to make the comparison to Turkey because Turkey does this too, right? Turkey kind of plays both sides, but Turkey really has imperialist ambitions. And in India, the situation might be a little bit more complex than that. But I do think that, while I don't know, and I can't guarantee that unity will necessarily grow stronger at the political level, let's say between China and India. I do think that there are just economic forces that, almost preclude that, that almost make it so, while India, right, it may not be its first choice to cooperate on an alternative currency and financial system, China, it isn't really because The only other option is to keep going along the same path, and that would stagnate, right? Because the the international financial system has not been a friend – the Western financial system has not been a friend to India historically, and it certainly won't be a friend of India in the long term. So I think that, well, no, we can't expect necessarily because I think the politics are out of the control of, let's say, China or even other countries –
2: um, in India, I do think
0: that uh, there are these objective conditions that the only way to to increase development, to really um, to really move forward, right? To even grow as an economy, which India is very much interested in doing, is to collaborate and cooperate with china to some degree so i think that's the case also with a lot of other countries that are hostile toward china and they you know i don't want to or some countries like that to apply for the BRICS, right i don't <laughs> i don't expect them to do that but at the same time bilateral relations with china are very important and i think for india it's almost like a negotiation between well how important are your political disputes right how important are these ideological disputes versus how important is it for india to be able to continue on an economic growth path how important is it for the ruling party for the bjp to have that success because it seems to me that given its you know given the bjp's domestic politics it's incredibly important that india uh, continue to grow. So that's where I think there is the point of unity. And it may not be one that we're like, oh that's it may it may it may be kind of absent of the morals that we may like in in <laughs> especially on the left. It's just the reality that because of China's policy and even Russia's policy of non interference in Kind of realms, to, you know, in the realms of politics in other countries, uh, I think it works. At least it works as good as it's going to work, and it's something that they'll continue to pursue and strengthen. And you know, I think, uh, I think there are interests on all sides to to try to build a stronger relationships among the BRICS countries. But yeah, th- I think that is the biggest contradiction within the BRICS that you point out: China and India, you know. And, and and we'll see uh, I think I think that one of the reasons BRICS is actually becoming more inclusive is not just because it's a part of the value system of the countries involved especially China and Russia that lead it I also think that the more inclusive it is the more things can get done like Unlike, uh, you know, unlike how we usually view, like, you know, usually when you add more cooks in the kitchen, it's harder to get things done. But I actually think here, by adding more voices, Irans, maybe Argentina as they're becoming new members, maybe, you know, the more you add more voices, I think the more you can drown out actually the points of disunity. And that might be also one of the reasons why this is expanding in the way that it is. Because there is a common point of unity, there needs to be independent,
2: sovereign development,
0: financial system, or at least the rudiments of one built to get there. And the more p- inclusive it is, the more that these points of disunity uh, maybe can be neutralized so it doesn't hinder progress. Because it is going to be a slow a slow go. And, and part of the, the reason for that is that there is a lot to work through. So, so that was a good question. Thank yeah, you, for Sonia, for that. that
2: was a good explanation of, <laughs> I, I think that's a pretty good assessment of what's happening. Thanks.
0: I appreciate it. Thank you. I'm going to let Lance in uh, as the next. Hey,
3: caller. Danny, love Hello. your work. Great to talk to you. You you were just talking about Iran and uh, Argentina and these countries. Well, you you weren't referring to NATO, were you?
0: No, no, they're they're applying for BRICS.
3: Oh, so it's brick Gotcha. Yeah, that sounds yep, like a right. great idea. Yeah. Um, you know, it's fascinating. There's a guy named Gregory Corso. He was a beat poet. He wrote a book called Gasoline. I think it was in that book. He said he said something that I read back like in the eighties. Uh, that he had written it a lot sooner in the 60s, but it's pretty obvious. But he said, we've already had a nuclear war, folks. So all you guys out there that say we have to prevent there ever being a nuclear war, we already had one. It was called August 6th and 9th, 1945, when old and the somber, reasonable, straightforward. You know, we've had a lot of loonies even before Trump. You know, we had Harding. We had, you know, Johnson and Andrew Johnson, and we had Buchanan. You know, we've had some real loony." But so this is the guy that love him or hate him. This is the guy that's like Mr. Mr. Somber, you know, Mr. Mr. Straight Talker, a, a major bestseller on New York Times. was called Plain Speaking by Merle Miller, number one for 500 weeks or something, 10 years it was on there. He dropped a freaking nuclear bomb twice, you know. Now it's true that there's a book called Cripple Giant by William Proxmire who said we were going around saying, that's right, we'll do it to you. You better do what we want, folks. No, pretty no uncertain term. We're the big baddies. They should have realized that the formulas were going to get out. As soon as they had the bomb, you know, we need to rethink this whole idea of like going around with our footprint on the world. Maybe we need to have detente. Okay. As soon as they had the bomb, the whole tone changed. Now we're back to where we were somehow. Mm -hmm. What do you think is happening where people don't realize that when Putin talks about nukes, he's not doing some like Russian, like, like goofy threat of like nuclear war. He's talking about what he said, limited nuclear war. And I grew up in the sixties running from the classroom putting our head between our legs, even at six years old, I'm like, well, how's this going to protect us from this big, bad bomb that's going to destroy everything someday? We were never afraid of that, most people, fallout shelters. And it might not have been peak Cold War, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and maybe in the 80s or whatever, maybe a little bit more. But in terms of the real threat, you know, whatever it was, we weren't concerned about it. My parents weren't paranoid about it. But, you know, it was there. It was a threat. But where, where is this casual, you know, casualness that Putin has actually brought up the subject of limited nuclear war? Why is there not like red alerts going on everywhere? Why is that not even being, oh, really? <laughs> oh, that crazy guy. <laughs> yeah, he's a crazy guy or he's not crazy. He's not crazy. He's not crazy, he's not crazy at all. He's very calculated, mm-hmm. but he's smart and calculated. and He's a former KGB guy who's not going to be afraid to use limited fucking nukes if he's backed into a corner. Why can't anyone see this?
0: Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I mean, you had the former. President, who still is prominent in in in, in the United Russia Party, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, he said it's straight up about um, about uh, the Sweden Finland NATO membership um, about to happen. He said, "Yeah, we're going to put nukes on our border right right after that." I mean, that was said straight up and. I think your point is so true, is so good because, one, we have to understand that Russia is being backed into a corner and will – yeah, will strike back. We know – because look at what's happening with Ukraine. It will strike back. And we have to understand that the only way you stop such things from happening is from preventing the problem from happening, the problem from occurring. You can't prevent – NATO's just reckless militarization unless you care about it. But there's a lot of this, exactly, kind of like passive carelessness, callousness. It's almost like we don't expect. The United States has used nukes before, as you said. It also is totally willing to engage in incredibly destructive wars nothing in the U.S.'s history that says, oh, yeah, no, the U.S. will do the right thing here, right? No, the United States is militarily encircling Russia. And it was probably naive, even of me, because I wasn't predicting the special military operation. Maybe I should have, because I had been covering the military encirclement of Russia since 2013-14. And we probably should have all expected that a country encircled Right, it's sort of like the Black Panther. I don't know if you're all familiar with the Black Panther Party. The Black Panther Party for self-defense was not a let's pick up guns and start shooting people or shooting cops or whatever. No, it was all about the Black Panther. What does a panther do? A panther does not attack unless backed into a corner, and that's exactly what's happening with Russia. And we have to understand that to take it seriously, and we have to take seriously what needs to be done. And uh 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 opposing any kind of nuclear exchange that's provoked by the united states and nato that's what we have to do we can't just be sitting back and say oh biden you know he's reasonable rational right what did all the democrats say he won't he, we'd rather have him with the finger on the nuclear button than uh, than trump the problem is is that there's a finger on the button <laughs> that's the real problem here is that there's always a finger on and uh, that's because you know war is a way of life for this uh, for this country for the United States government for the system that dictates it so um we have we have two more callers uh, uh I will um if you guys can be patient um I'm going to let Lance just respond because he said he wants to do so quickly so please just quickly uh, respond
2: and Will uh,
3: give
0: it to uh,
2: yeah. Uh,
3: I'm gonna stop. I, yeah. I forgot what it was. Can you can you unmute me for this next guy? Oh, damn it! Maybe I okay. can think of it in 20 seconds here. Um, Putin and Russia and encircling Russia and the fact that he um, yeah he was our guy. Um, oh damn! That's why I didn't know I was muted. I, I had it on the tip of my tongue. Yeah. That's okay. Um, you can um,
0: you can if you want to think about it. I'll get to the next callers, and then you can come back if you're uh, if you do think of it. Okay. All right. You did that. Okay. Thanks, Lance. Um, uh, I will give it to. I don't know who's first, but uh, Bide, um, you are next. And uh, yeah, I'm all, I'm going to be on for an, another like ten or so minutes. So yeah, uh, if it could be. I don't want to rob you of time but
4: oh man i was going to read a, a brief history of time and space just now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so nice, nice i guess i'll have to wrap it up um first of yeah. all uh first time uh, listening to the show i think and uh, some really good stuff here uh thanks for you know kind of giving us a lowdown on uh mm-hmm. just the continued war in ukraine uh situation with nato and uh the I found the China and India stuff really fascinating. Um, so I'm 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 not I have a hard time looking at the situation with Russia, uh, the credible sort of way they've been backed into a corner, not excusing their behavior, uh, in invading Ukraine at all, but uh, the the casualness with which our leaders seem to be uh, addressing the the threat of nuclear war and i'm not sure if there is this just a result of sort of a continued sort of uh i don't know neoliberal understanding or a neoliberal uh foreign policy that's just kind of gone off the rails is it the the culmination of uh i don't know like the years and years of uh, an increasing sort of military industrial complex or why. I, I don't understand why the, the situation doesn't seem to be taken very seriously right now. And I was wondering if you had any insight about that. Um,
0: yeah. I think there's a lot of re- brief because I definitely want to get to Andrew and Lance, write down your comment uh, or at least note it. Just so you don't forget because I'll I'll close with you. I have andrew on um who's been waiting, but i I'll, I'll be quick I think that there are a multitude of factors. you named some of them. I think the military industrial complex, the growth of a, of prof- of war profiteering to an unprecedented level, right unseen in history, I mean, just unseen. the level of monopolization of capital in the defense industry, huge role. Huge role, incredible, probably understated role in why the the catastrophic path being laid by NATO, being laid by the United States is happening right now. Like, like I think it's understated at times. It's almost flipping because we expect it. I think that's probably part of the problem of uh, the United States is there's low expectations in the United States among ordinary people where we don't expect anything. Because, well, we don't have much trust in the government, etc. But you expect when you hear something like defense industry, right? When you hear thing of like weapons contractors, you don't necessarily think that they have peace in mind, right? So I think that there's almost like this normalization of that that's been very scary. They, they, they've been growing in their political influence as much as in terms of revenue and You know, concentration of of the overall defense market, whatever that is. So that's definitely a big part of it. I also think uh, part of this is hubris. I truly do think that the United States and its European allies, to a large degree, they don't learn lessons because their system is predicated, imperialism is predicated on a very very basic set of principles uh, and laws. And one of them is, you know, private accumulation, capital accumulation at all costs. Another is this of life at all costs. And so there's a hubris around that, a superiority complex, tinge of racism. I won't just say tinge. It's really, I mean, it's absolutely incredibly racist. Uh, I think the hubris involved in all of that actually does cloud judgment like it makes it so the laws of this system are powerful it's almost like a train on tracks that can't re- they can't stop because you know both who's behind it right is guided by an ideology uh, that isn't allowing the ship to steer a different way but also because the tracks are actually faulty and Uh, the train won't stop because it's supposed to go in that direction. And uh, uh, I think that we have, have both sort of at play, that there is sort of these laws and principles that are fueled by a class war that are fueled by, as you said, like a neoliberal neocon sort of ruling class establishment. Like they, profit from this they want to achieve certain objectives in the foreign policy realm to benefit their class to improve their economic supremacy hegemony needed to do that and then there's the hubris of well how far can you go how far can you take things and i think at different moments at different points of history there are sometimes leaps made in that direction and sometimes there are retreats, right? Because I do think, well, the, you know, uh, right now it seems like there are just leaps constantly being made and there's a two-front war that the United States and it's Russia and china uh, But it, isn't o- it hasn't always been like this and it's because there, there are different circumstances. And I also think that the U.S.'s shrinking economy is playing a real role in this. Its economic instability, it's the fact that it is going to be, if it isn't already, the number two economy in the world, capitalist economy in the world. Well, China's not a capitalist economy, purchasing power parity terms, bigger than the U.S. Point. I do think that that in and of itself kind of brings a lot of just like red hot fire to the ruling class. Like, like that's some of this hubris also is driven by this maddening pursuit to just end any challenge to its rule. And it gets, these forces truly believe that they can't. In a lot of ways they're correct because a world Built on international law, peace, even just these, even just what the BRICS is proposing, which I wouldn't call some sort of communist utopia at this point. That's really just a realistic project it's for to get out of underdevelopment and poverty. That can't ex- coexist with the way that the United States and its imperialist allies see the world, and so I think there's a lot of friction there. They really try to conceal, but are coming into of crises that aren't allowing it to conceal, You know, they're not, they're not concealed anymore. They can't, they can't, they can't hold it back anymore. And so this NATO summit was really an unprecedented, I think, move in the direction of kind of stripping off and whatever mask existed, just, or veil existed, just doesn't exist anymore. Um, and, and, and it's just about, are we paying attention? Is there a capacity to pay attention? Cause we don't know. Move on to Andrew. Cause I, i um and then uh, I will get to Lance and then uh, maybe Bite if you're still around and then that will be it. I'm sorry everybody, but Andrew, you're in the queue. You're next. Hey Danny. Hey Danny. Hi. Hey. Uh, hey.
5: Uh, I, I. Oh, sorry. I'm hearing an echo. Should I take out my headphones?
0: Yes, if you are. But um, hold on one second. Actually,
5: I think it. Oh, well, anyways, my. My, um, I don't, I, I, there's not much to add really to what you just said about, uh, motivations, um, hubris, limitations in, in mental capacity. I agree with all that, but, uh, um, I think that the public, um, and I've actually heard Ralph Nader talk about this a lot. Um, the public or his guests on a show, I don't think in Europe they um missing any fear of nuclear war i think that they understand more than americans probably cuz they they know they'll be the theater of warfare how unsurvivable nuclear war is um, but even like even if the goal was to kind of sur- i mean i think we should be screaming from the mountaintop nuclear war is not survivable you fucking idiots um to, and just you know fucking idiots directed at or whoever else is right, we shouldn't be ruling out nuclear war because it's a good games brinksmanship tool. Um, but I wanted to bring up nuclear fallout shelters. Um, they used to be constructed all of the time. Uh, I'm from Seattle, and there's one like nuclear fallout shelter that was constructed f- to be a public shelter, and it's under a freeway underpass underneath i-5 and pretty soon after they built that they they had built that as a pilot for a program to build them under you know a huge number of of kind of highway intersections across the united states and then dropped that program i guess because they may have realized that maybe it's not survivable anyways or that they just didn't want to spend the money on that and they were going to put all their chips in the we'll just win um we should be talking about this a little bit because it's like if people really believe that they're going to survive let's grant them okay you'll survive the blast you'll get into your fallout shelter what are the fallout, what are the bunkers like um i would encourage everyone to go on youtube and check out this guy named i don't know how to say his name it's like shai or shie it's s h i e y um he's an interesting character he's a of abandoned kind of industrial infrastructure but he's done a number of videos going through old like soviet fallout shelters and it's just such a striking difference like in seattle apart from that one uh public one and they just use it for like storage now they just have like department of transportation stored in there that one all the rest of them there's like there used to be a large number in the sixties in Seattle. They all came as a sort of uh built in offering in a home like it would be a selling point to buy a home in the fifties and sixties that already had a bunker and we're talking a bunker with you know absolutely no sunlight, there's no plants growing, they have very limited rations, and there's no tunnels between the bunkers, so you're fucking sucking if that's not scary they're gonna survive. I don't really understand what will convince them, uh, but I think that we should be talking, and, and hopefully that doesn't convince them to be like, oh, well, let's just build more bigger bunkers or tunnels between them so I can see my you know, mistress or whatever. I think that the point should be you're not going to survive, and even if you do, the life that you would be consigned to is miserable, and if you ever come out of the bunker, um, who knows what you're going to see. Um, but also, again, how she is. Uh, videos about exploring some of the Soviet bunkers. I thought it was very interesting. I mean, they're built for like 15,000 people. They have all of these like fairly sophisticated air and water filters and stuff like that. So they were actually they were actually planning for people to survive and not go insane because they're trapped with one person that they don't like so much. Um, but even then, I'm not sure how feasible that was.
0: No, totally. I mean, it's a situation you don't want to be in. I mean, exactly what you're saying. Not survivable, but I, I can't even. Infrastructure investment and the G, this ridiculous $600 billion uh, proposal to counter the Belt and Road. I mean, if we, I, I don't, I, I see zero dollars being invested in uh, uh, legitimate uh, shelters like that. I, I think it's, it. it, it would, it's just, it's just crazy. I mean, thanks for bringing this up because I think it really does point to how even have to talk about it. feels irrational. Uh, but I want to get to Lance because he's been waiting. <laughs> he had a point. And so uh, Lance, uh, I'm going to close out with you before I put you on. I'm just going to uh, remind everyone uh, who's here to please follow this podcast. Follow me here on the Colin app. And uh, also of course, you know you can support my work on Patreon, my columns, my live streams, and uh, is very much appreciated um, as well as supporting this work here on the Callin app. So, Lance, you are now the caller again. <laughs> Sorry to make you wait.
3: No, that's thanks, Danny. Yeah, I'm on it. It was like a lot of. Uh, a while back, they're on, what, Useful Idiots, I think, you know. So I've been following you ever since and reading your stuff. Great. But, yeah, as for my comp, just like Exxon and all the- the-, the the oil companies and all, they knew what climate change, what they were doing to it. The tobacco companies knew about the dangers of the tobacco and the pharmaceuticals know about opioids killing folks. And the Pentagon, deep down in the bowels, they know what they're capable of. Right? And that report that came out a while back, Again, didn't get hardly anything. Breath. They said, we're not sure we can actually win a major war at this point that that they said that publicly. And I've been wondering since Storm and Norman Schwarzkopf got to be like the new, I don't know, Sherman or whatever, you know, G- General Washington, because he uh, was capable. of taking the most powerful army on the planet in the history of the world and defeated Iraq and Kuwait. And since then, it's like, it's just been one fuck up after another. And I wonder about that because there's an interesting law that, you know, they can shield whistleblowers legally at the CIA because of a decor and trade secret. But there's a reverse law that if you're a uniformed American, you have to tell the unvarnished truth. There's special penalties beyond just court martial. You're in real big trouble if you just blatantly tell a falsehood and you're a military officer. So they, they, they have to publicly state things at least as accurately without obfuscation that they could do by being clever and generals are they don't get to be generals by winning the, uh, a lot of battles and so you know i just think that we have to wonder whether they're even capable that's why they're going with drones and big war talk right not really pushing back about the nukes and it might explain the rapid now ridiculous and you're right you know people like yourself who are also well informed and i ain't like aaron mate and others Mac lundel i think i think we're really surprised at how fast and how far this has all gone on both sides everything that would explain NATO World War II, learning our lesson from the draconian measures against our enemies after World War I, after World War II we, insta- we instituted the Marshall Plan and we put the- and incubated a parliamentary system, because there was too many crazy parties already, we knew that they, we couldn't just, we were going to install some kind of constitutional American-style government. So we made sure it was parliamentary countries with different, but they could get a fairer type of pol- political system built from the ground up. They also, because we were realigning countries in the whole bit, in some of it, in some of Europe, and Eastern Europe, and so and also the idea of universal health care, yeah, real, or at least real good health care for all of Europe. We installed what Europe today is. The thing that we did after the Marshall Plan for Europe and made it happen for them is exactly what is considered radical politics in America now, <laughs> and that's just, i think a pretty 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 strong thread you know without having mm. specific you agree
0: yeah no I totally that's the thing that uh it's not talked about enough. Uh, I, I've even tried to look up articles for this because people will mention it, right? I mean, because the Soviet Union, the, the the Cold War was a huge, even during the World War II, it was a huge, already a a big thought. You know, it was already a driving principle of what the United States wanted to do after World War II. It was our, this is the next stage. And so supporting Europe, right? Trying, doing whatever it could, to ensure that Europe could develop in a certain way that was anti-communist on the one hand, but also can take care of the threat of communism. You can't just take care of the threat of communism or socialism by, you know, keeping countries poor. I mean, that makes socialism very attractive. So Europe, yes, was able to develop a social welfare system. And in the social welfare system that exists in the United States, a big reason for it wasn't the only reason people for something like the new deal, but if for a a sort of cold war mentality, FDR said it, he said, if you know, we got to stabilize capitalism or we're going to have a revolution like that, that, that was all part of this. And I, I totally agree that um, it's very ironic. And I think it just goes to show how far things have come and how, you know, nothing stays the same. We're in a situation where, the very world order that the united states wanted to prop up for you know reasons that uh, i think for people like myself it, were were not incredibly uh, noble but at the same time the very things that were propped up in europe in order to prevent right, right socialism are now seen as antithetical to anything that the united states could or should have I think. yeah it definitely should on on over the decades and how uh, uh, when political circumstances changed the United States and its elites they took advantage and and they facilitated them and and now we're in the situation where they're taking advantage and facilitating uh, new and more heinous and dangerous uh, circumstances for for humanity and for all of us
3: yeah, do, do you yeah, think this so. is going overboard to say, right, to finish, you know, my point, you know, not my, to finish my point, I'm just make one last quick thought here. At its best, really, in some way for workers and for the country. And, you know, we were we were very optimistic going from World War Two and the JFK and, you know, mm-hmm. the, onward into the into the future and eight years to get to the to the moon and all that. You know, it was a thriving part, one of the best parts of our of our history and the people right and left. So now here's my point. The Christian fascists and the corporate fascists are doing everything they can to destroy what was once upon a time the closest we ever had in America to the fulfillment of what the was supposed to be. We took it. We got to the point where it was so good, and these people—they know why. They know it was too, and they because they've been trying since the New Deal, and they're trying to create a Christian fascist slash corporate fascist. That's why these people are so allied together because they have the same fascism at the end of it that they want wage slaves and, and, and everybody having no no pill and women impregnant lots of workers and we're all good to go so that's my point is that they're yeah they're liberally destroying the very thing that like you're as we're saying what they created after world war ii they want to destroy it now and speaking of, not see william proximal finish with this he wrote a great book called the Cripple giant a lot of the book was quote just before and just after world war ii when we had the bomb and we really had our were are big for our bridges you better watch out. You better watch out. We're coming for you next. Not with nukes per se, but you better do what we want because we're the big bad. We're the old superpower now. Hmm. They had to know that, that nukes were going to be developed by Russia pretty quick. With the, formulas, the, the, the theories and the equations were there. Germany had smart sci- scientists, so did Russia. Russia, but they didn't see ahead. And as soon as Russia got the bomb, you know this idea of chopping, you know, chopping around the world. You know, maybe we need what? to push back, pu- pull back a little bit, and have time yeah. We don't want to have yeah. any superpowers that completely change their tune. But somehow uh, we forgot that. Now we want to bring that back again.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, Lance, thanks for your contributions. I actually have somebody uh, uh, on here now. Who who up uh, uh, or not? I thought uh, I thought uh, someone wanted to to call in but thanks lance for your contribution.
3: i didn't mean to do that i'm sorry danny thank you so much for for this that's
0: okay that's okay lance thanks um i thought i saw someone in the queue i would definitely take it um if you still want to comment ask uh i can stay on for another five or so minutes but if not then i can close up here um so i'll i'll just give a few concluding remarks announcements uh, perhaps as i go along i'm gonna try to be on here tomorrow as well i have something to make up because i was uh, uh away for a week um it may not be tomorrow though it may have to wait until i may have to make up more <laughs> make up more uh, after the 4th Actually, on the left lens on my YouTube channel, I'm going to be interviewing Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who wrote Indigenous People's History of the United States and some other uh, great works. Not a Nation of Immigrants is her latest. And we have a lot to talk about because she's actually hit on so many relevant questions. The Indigenous, of course, question the question of guns, right? She wrote a whole book, Loaded, about the Second Amendment and immigrants, which is all about. What has been the a real immigrant experience been like? And so we should have a really fun talk about, you know, into this July 4th, about what the United States is all about. And I hope you can join on the left lens. You can find that on YouTube. Um, but with that said, you know, I'm going to try to be on tomorrow as well. Uh, if I'm unable, I will make sure you all know when I am. But it was a pleasure to be here with all of you today. Uh, please do um, follow me here on the Colin app. If you are not already, you can share this around, make sure people see it. Um, And uh, uh, in addition to that, of course you can support my work and the link in my Colin profile, patreon.com slash Danny. You can find uh, the, the primary way to support my work there. And yeah, please do continue to follow me here on Colin and I will be back with you all very soon. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye.